gifts in anything. And if you remember, one of the things that Paul said is, what do you have that you've not been given? If you're going to boast, boast in the only thing in which you can boast, and that is in Christ Jesus. Amen? Why don't you have a seat with me this morning? If you have a Bible, turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 6. I want to read just the opening two verses this morning. Uh, there's a lot here uh, that contain just in these short two verses. Uh, well, actually, I think the cutoff sometimes in, in different translations is better than others. There's a little phrase right at the end that in my Bible gets included with verse 3, but I'm going to read it this morning as part of verse 2, and we'll probably come back to it again next time. So follow along as I read First Timothy chapter 6, starting in verse 1. Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that at the name of God, excuse me, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Teach and urge these things. Let's pray together. Father God, it's easy to read these verses and kind of gloss over them. There's truth that at first pass may seem obvious, but as we dig into it, we find that there's a real purpose and reason why you instructed not only this first early church here in Ephesus to abide by these things, but a reason why this is included for our instruction today. And so I pray as we think about work, as we think about serving, as we think about bond servants, masters, so on and so forth, I pray that you would give us grace to not only understand, but to take it out and live it uh, as we leave here today. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to take a quick poll before we start this morning, okay? So uh, here's, I, I want to have a couple questions. For those of you that are employed whether you're part-time, full-time, somewhere in there, how many of you, by raise of hands, cannot wait to get up in the morning and go to work? You love your job so much. Thank you. There's one. He works for me. All right. Uh, It's a good thing you said that. Uh, There's a couple of you. Okay, there's a couple of you. Uh, Don't mind. You wouldn't even have to get a paycheck. You would go to work. All right. Maybe a couple, all right? How many of you, if you wake up in the morning, you absolutely dread the idea of going to work today? Maybe you're not brave enough to raise your hand. Just give me a little wink or nod, all right? If your boss is sitting next to you, you definitely don't want to say that, right? And how many of you maybe are somewhere in between? I mean, they have free coffee, so it's not too bad. You get a paycheck, all right? It's, it's not the bottom of the barrel. It's not your dream job, not the bottom of the barrel. You're somewhere in there. All of us have a perspective, right? If you're employed, you have some perspective of your work, some perspective of your workplace. Maybe it's life-fulfilling. It's everything you wanted it to be. Maybe it's just to pay the bills. Maybe it's a necessary evil that you kind of endure, and then someday you'll get to do the things that you always wanted to do uh, when you retire. We all have a perspective, right? We all think about work in in different ways. 
Here's what I love about the Bible. And here's what I love about the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ puts in perspective all of those things. It informs us how we should think about these things, right? It tells us that the revelation of God in Jesus Christ, preserved for us in Scripture, defines us how to think about the here and now in light of the kingdom of Jesus. Your Bible, as one person said this week, is crammed full of relevance. It's crammed full of relevance. And these two verses are a prime example. Two very short verses, but crammed full of relevance. I would make this argument about work and employment and your workspace. A Christian worldview looks at work eschatologically. Now let me explain that big word, okay? It means the eschaton, the end. When you and I think about our workplace, we should have an eternal perspective that informs our here and now. Okay, we should be thinking about the unseen and the future and how that impacts how we live out today's duties. Okay, there, there's a couple of verses that Paul gives in Colossians chapter 3. He says this, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Catch this, set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. Some people will say, he's so heavenly minded, he's no earthly good. I would make the argument that the person who is most heavenly minded is actually the most earthly good. And I think I can explain that as we go through this particular passage this morning. So how do we set our mind on things that are above when we think about our workplace? When we think about where we're going to go clock in tomorrow, uh, on Monday morning. That's what I want us to explore this morning. Now, if you've been with us over the last while, we've been working our way through 1 Timothy. And as we've gone through 1 Timothy chapter 5, you recall that we've address particular groups of people. In the beginning of chapter 5, Paul looks at the elderly and then he takes somewhat of a a typical subset of the elderly and talks about widows. And then at the end of chapter 5, he comes back and talks about elders. And now he's going to focus his attention here at the beginning of chapter 6 on slaves and masters, bondservants and and masters. Now, my translation also says bond servants. It is more accurately translated as slaves. When you and I hear that word slave in modern America 2019, our minds are quickly drawn to the horrific enslavement of people of color who were taken as property and, and forced into labor here in our land because of their ethnicity. That slavery that you and I often think about was immoral, it was ugly, it was a stain on our country's past, and sadly we, we still feel a lot of those effects today. Slavery in the Roman Empire, as Paul's going to describe here, was a bit different. And so I want to make sure that we understand the context. So when we encounter this word slave, that we understand what Paul was talking to uh, when he spoke to this issue. The Roman world was full of slaves. 
In fact, historians estimate that up to one-third of the entire population of Rome were actually slaves. There was an account where legislators at one time in Rome thought it would be nice to have slaves all wear some kind of distinctive clothing so that you could tell a slave from a free man because of how they roamed together. But the idea was quickly abandoned when they put together the pieces and realized if we do that, the slaves are going to know how many of them there actually are. And so they, they didn't do that. They didn't have them wear any kind of separate clothing. But the slaves, were there were so many uh, in the Roman Empire. People became slaves for different kinds of reasons in those days. Some of them were slaves because they were prisoners of war. If you remember back into the Old Testament, the account of Daniel, he was taken as a prisoner of war uh, when the Israelites were captured. Other slaves in that Roman culture uh, were condemned men. They were found guilty of some crime and they were forced into slavery as a result. There was a third category of slaves uh, within the empire, and those were slaves who were paying off some debt. Uh, For whatever reason, they couldn't pay their debt, and so they were forced into slavery in order to finish off payment to their master. Now, sometimes that ended up being for life. Other times that was a temporary arrangement, but it was enslavement nonetheless. There were slaves uh, for debtors' reasons. Other slaves became slaves because they were kidnapped. Sadly, we still see this today in the the human trafficking world, in the sex slave industry. There's a reason why they're called slaves. Often they're kidnapped and forced into uh, that industry. So there, there was those kind of slaves, kidnapped ones. And then there were children who were sold off by their parents to be slaves. Maybe it was used to pay a debt or maybe uh, they couldn't afford to take care of all their children at home and so they would sell them into slavery and those children would grow up to be slaves and they would have children and children of slaves were automatically slaves. Okay, So you have all these different categories of, of slavery uh, in the Roman Empire and that Paul would have been encountering as he wrote here to this church at Ephesus. But here are some of the Massive differences, really, between Roman slavery and what took place in the United States over the last couple hundred years. Many of the Roman slaves attained degrees. They were educated. They were, they were sent to school. Sometimes they had high degrees. Not only were they the barber, not only were they the butler, not only were they the cook, but your family physician might actually be a slave. That's how high they would allow them to move. Slaves like Daniel were allowed to run entire countries when they showed that sort of aptitude. It was not uncommon at all uh, for slaves in the Roman world to be the household manager. And they would manage everything from the meals to the finances to raising children. They they were treated almost in in many ways as as part of the the family. Very different from the brutal reality uh, faced by African Americans here. Now, does that mean that all Roman uh, masters were good? No. And there are accounts of Roman masters that were not good. Uh, They were allowed to beat their slaves. They, they were allowed to chain them or, or lash them. If, they were caught, if a Roman slave was caught trying to escape, 
the master could brand the letter F for fugitive on his forehead. So if he ever tried to run away again, it was obvious this was a slave and needed to be returned to his master. So not all slave masters in Rome were good. But that wasn't typical. Most of them actually were good to their slaves. Public opinion in that time kind of prevented slave owners from being cruel because the system kind of worked. So they wanted the system to continue. Other slave masters in the Roman world were actually quite good and loved their slaves. There's an account in Matthew chapter 8 of a slave owner that demonstrated incredible love uh, for his slave. Let me just read uh, this account to you. It says in Matthew 8, verse 5, When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy for you to come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too, he said, am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go. And he goes, and I say to one, come, and he comes. And to my servant, I say, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. Clearly, that centurion had compassion and love for his servant, for his slave. He he was willing to go to the healer to find some healing for his slave. So, Many slaves in Rome lived under those kinds of conditions where they were valued, where they, where they were cared for. At the end of a debtor slave ship, um, some slaves would voluntarily place themselves back under the authority of the master. There's a whole process they went through. In those homes, slaves lived right along with the families, almost as equals, not quite, but almost as equals. They voluntarily said, I want to serve you uh, the rest of my life. Roman slaves could, could purchase their freedom. If you had a Roman slave and he worked for you, he could make extra money from extra chores that you had or or he could work for others on his off time and and save up enough money and and he could purchase his freedom. And when that happened, Roman masters would not only release their slaves, uh, but they would also send them out with gifts. It wasn't uncommon for a Roman master when he died in his last will and testament to free all of his slaves. That happened. So a very different type of scenario. In those inheritance agreements, sometimes they'd even give them property and money upon the master's death and, and they would be gone. So the system, the Roman system, it could be a good thing, it could be a bad thing, depending on the heart and the attitude of the master. But here's one thing that you should know, and Jason mentioned it this morning. The system of slavery is never condoned in the Bible. And sometimes you'll hear non-believers make that accusation. The system of slavery is never condoned in the Bible. It's described in the Bible. Uh, It's addressed many times in the Bible. But the Bible never condones slavery and never uh, promotes slavery. Slavery was a result of the fall. 
Now, if you think about other institutions that God established, there's always a directive. Think about marriage, for example. If you think about the institution of marriage, Jesus spoke to that institution of marriage in Matthew chapter 19, and he said, Therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. Jesus pointed to the marriage institution and said, That was established by God. God joined them together. Don't pull it apart. If you think about the institution of parenting, and we're talking about Father's Day today, parents and children, that institution was instituted by God. In Exodus chapter 20, one of the Ten Commandments says, Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and you may live long on the land. In the very law of God, he established this institution of, of parenthood But that kind of wording, what God has joined together, what God has established, that kind of wording cannot be found in your Bible in relationship to slavery. It was a man-made institution. It was a man-made institution brought about by the effects of sin. That's why Paul, in 1 Corinthians 7, could say to a slave, if you can get your freedom, get your freedom. That's why Paul could write this whole letter to Philemon and say, as a godly master, you need to let this slave Onesimus go. Okay, so the, the institution of slavery itself is not brought about by God. It's brought about by men. So it begs the question, when you and I come across verses in 1 Timothy 6 that say, slaves, uh, obey your masters, or masters, treat your slaves... Why don't the Bible writers just come out and say, this is wrong? Why don't they just outright condemn it? Why don't they just start this social revolution and just, and just free them all? Well, the truth of the matter is, they do start a social revolution. But it's not in the same way that you and I would expect it to be. That's kind of how the kingdom of Jesus often works. It's not exactly what we would think. Paul knows that the best kind of social change will be that which comes from the inside out. And so Paul starts talking to the hearts of slaves. He talks to the hearts of masters because he knows just like penetrating leaven, that will work its way through the dough and it will affect the whole batch. So it's actually because of Christianity that slavery, Roman slavery, eventually ended. The strategy worked. And of course it's going to work because Paul goes after the heart. So Paul does not come along and say, slaves, you just need to walk out. You just need to drop your tools and don't take it anymore. Walk out the door. Paul does not come along and say to the masters, you know what? You just need to quit it and you just need to let them go. Because Paul knows if he had that kind of approach, there would be social upheaval. And what would be the result of that? Man, overwhelming force from the Roman Empire. They would have come along and squelched that. They would have looked at Christianity as some kind of a militant group trying to undermine the social order. And they would have stomped that out quickly. So what does Paul do? Paul comes along and he addresses the heart. One by one, he talks to these slaves and says, you know what? You need to work with integrity. 
You need to work with honesty. You need to have a wholehearted devotion to the industry of your master and you watch how the heart of your master will melt as you begin to live that way. And eventually the whole Roman institution of slavery collapsed because of Christianity. Cultural change then and now occurs out of the transformation of the individual and the witness of the church. That's how social change happens. So, with that kind of a backdrop to slavery and our understanding of kind of how that works, let's look at our text today, okay? And today, 2019, in Florida, United States of America, we don't have slavery, but the principles that Paul gives here to slaves are the exact same principles that transfer over to this idea of employees when you work for and serve another human. Okay, so you'll see this direct corollary as we work our way through. If you are an employee, I think it'll be amazing how you'll find that these apply to your work today. Paul directs his words here to slaves only. Now, in other passages that he writes, he talks to masters, but here he talks only to the slaves. And we know that these slaves that he's talking to, these are Christian slaves. Well, how do we know that? Because he's writing the letter to the church of Ephesus, anticipating that when the letter is read, there will be slaves sitting in the audience hearing the letter. Okay, so these are Christian slaves to whom are hearing this letter. And he's going to address slaves that find themselves in one of two situations. Either they work for a master who is not a believer, or they work for one who is. Okay, so those are the two situations. In verse 1, he talks to Christian slaves who work for non-believing masters. And in verse 2, he talks to Christian slaves who work for Christian masters. Okay, so notice this. Okay, so first, to those who have non-Christian masters, look at verse 1. Let all those who are under a yoke as a bondservant or as a slave, what are you to do for this non-Christian master? You are to regard your own masters as worthy of all honor so that the, at the, name, the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. What were slaves to do? They were to look at their masters and they were to give them all honor. Consider them worthy of all honor. They were to treat them respectfully. They were to treat them out of obedience. They were to be trustworthy. They couldn't sit back and think, you know what, I'm a child of God. That guy is nothing but a heathen. I don't have to listen to him. No, not at all. It's not at all what Paul Paul said. Don't do that. Why not? Because if this Christian slave looked at this unbelieving master and said, I don't have to serve you. I've got a master in heaven. Then that Christian, or that, excuse me, that non-Christian master is going to look at that slave and he's going to say, what kind of a religion is this? What, what kind of a disgrace is this? And Paul says, if that's your attitude toward that guy, you're going to bring disgrace on God. You're going to bring disgrace on the teaching of God. So think about this for a moment. What, What does Paul have in mind here? Paul has this eschatological, I can't say that word this morning. He has this evangelistic 
mindset when he comes to Christian slaves and non-Christian masters. Paul's saying, here's what I want you to think about, Christian slave. You need to be thinking about things eternal. You need to be thinking about the weightier things in life. You need to be thinking about the kingdom of Jesus and the impact of that kingdom on the here and now. So if you are a Christian and you work for a non-Christian and you pledge allegiance to Jesus, let that non-Christian see it. You might win him over. You might convince him that this Jesus is worthy of following. If you will live in such a way that brings honor to God and honors him as your master. If you don't do that, Paul says, this master is going to look at you and he's not going to want to have anything to do with your Christianity. So in a way that's consistent with the gospel, in a way that brings fame to God's reputation and God's glory, live in a way that honors that non-Christian master. That master's probably going to notice a changed life. He's probably going to look at you and say, wow, this is one of the most humble, obedient, genuine slaves that I have. And that speaks well to the character of God. Isn't it a shame when Christians today don't honor their bosses like Paul demands here? Isn't that a shame? That is a blight on the gospel when a Christian is the lowest performing employee, the most difficult personality, the one who is not a team player. What does that say about his or her God? What kind of a a testimony does that give to that non-Christian employer about that person's God? When I was in high school... I worked at a a fast food restaurant in the evenings and the weekends. In fact, I worked there uh, through most of my college. I had a a lot of different bosses. uh, Turnover's high in fast food restaurants. I had a lot of different bosses. Uh, I had some really good ones. uh, But I had this one who was absolutely terrible to work for. And I don't say that often, but she was absolutely terrible to work for. She was one of these uh, individuals who loved the position of authority. If, if you've ever been around someone like that, loves to take advantage of that position of authority. Uh, she would find unnecessary uh, tasks uh, just to, to keep us busy. We, we would never get off at whatever time we were scheduled to get off. She would always make sure that we were late uh, getting out of there because of all the, no matter how hard we tried. I remember mopping the dining room one time and I, I, I honestly gave it my best. She made me redo it two times after that just because she could. Right? And I remember inside, honestly, inside I was struggling. Ah, and I get it. When you're young, you try to cut corners and, and, and that kind of stuff happens. But I can tell you, I was making a genuine effort. And almost with this wicked grin, just kind of, ah, you need to do that again. You know what? God convicted me. And I was determined I was going to win her over. I was, if, if there's anybody, I'm going to win this boss over And I was convicted in part by these two verses. And so I really, and let me just say this, it was by God's grace. Because inside, I I was struggling. 
But by God's grace, I try as hard as I could to put on a smile, to, to be obedient, to do the things that she asked, to honor her, to try to do it cheerfully. You know what's really cool about that story? Today, when we go back to Indiana to visit family, that boss of mine works at Walmart now. And when I see her, she will go out of her way to come over and say hi to me. Not, and again, that's not to pat me on the back. It's to say, this works. First Timothy 6.1 works. When you honor your non-Christian boss, you can melt their heart. You can show them a love of Jesus that is difficult for you to do, but by God's grace, you can do it. I challenge you today. If you work for a non-Christian boss, can you do that? First Timothy 6.1. Paul speaks to slaves who have believing masters as well. That's, that's verse 2, right? Look, look at verse 2. He says, Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved as well. Now, here's the interesting thing. Put yourself back in the time period in the early first century when when this was written. Here's what's happening. We have masters that are becoming Christians. We have slaves that are becoming Christians. And they end up going to church together. And in terms of their salvation, they are 100% equal. In fact, Paul goes out of his way in Galatians chapter 3 when he's talking about their salvation. He says, there's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free right there. He says, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. He says, whether you're slave or whether you're free, when you enter into the presence of God, you are equal in terms of your salvation. So here are these masters and these slaves and on the outside, they're in positions like this, but when they walk into the church, they're equal. And, and no doubt there's some of these slaves that are end up being qualified to be elders and deacons. And so when they walk into the church, here you have this situation where you might have a slave who's in church leadership and a master who's not. A slave who has been gifted in teaching and preaching. And, and here you have a master who's sitting in the pew listening to the instruction from his slave in the things of God. It seems like a very odd situation, no? Now, if that happened, how tempting would it be for that slave to walk out the door and say, you know what, I'm an elder in this church, I'm a deacon in this church, and my master's not, he ought to be listening to me. He ought to be giving me some slack. I mean, my goodness, I, 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 I instruct him what to do in the church. Who is he to, to tell me what to do out here? That slave could be tempted to do that. Maybe he's late serving breakfast one day because he's finishing his devotions. Maybe he's, instead of plowing the field, he's witnessing to his neighbor. Because, Master, you and I would both like that, right? You see how he might take advantage of the fact that they're both Christians. What's Paul's response to that? Paul says in verse 2, he says, Don't be disrespectful on the ground that those are your brothers. He says, instead of serving less, you need to serve all the better. 
He goes, because this fellow believer, this brother or sister in Christ is a beloved child of the Almighty. And in your service to him or her, it is a privilege to serve another person of the faith, another child of the Almighty. And so when you go into your workplace, slave, he says, don't use it as an opportunity to take advantage of that employer. I I think that that same principle applies to you and I today. If you go to work tomorrow and you have a Christian employer, you do not have a license to abuse that on the basis of your common salvation. Don't fall asleep at your desk and pretend like you were praying when he comes by. Okay? Don't do shoddy work and then just say, God didn't lay it on your heart to do so well today. Don't don't do that. Right? Don't ask for special favors. Don't don't ask for special treatment because you're a Christian and, and maybe your co-worker is not. Don't, and especially, don't take advantage of your position in the church. If that's a position of authority or a position of leadership, do not hold that over your employer's head when you go to work. Like, don't you tell me what to do because when we get to church, I'll put you in your place. Don't Don't do that. Paul says, you serve all the better. To behave in disrespectful ways would be to utterly disgrace God and your Christian testimony. You have an eternal focus. Your focus is to evangelize those employers that are not Christians and to serve well and serve with joy those who are. Okay? Jesus didn't come to earth to live, die, and rise again in order for you just to merely have a ticket to heaven. He didn't come and and do all those things for you so that you could make your fortune and retire someday and live on easy street. No, God gave you employment as a tool for you to use to share the gospel with other people and to serve well those who already know the gospel. That's why he gave you a job. How many hours a week do you spend in your employment? A lot, right? A minimum 40 if you're full-time, 50, 60, 70 hours a week. How long are you with your employer and with your co-workers? How many of those hours are you using for your own purposes? Or how many of those are you using for kingdom purposes? It's a huge tool you have in your hand today. I want to pray for us. And here's going to be my my prayer. And I'm going to challenge you with this. When you leave today and tomorrow you go in and you clock in to work, I want you to take 1 Timothy 6, 1 and 2 with you. How are you going to use that starting tomorrow? How are you going to use your work ethic, your integrity to witness to that non-Christian How are you going to use your words to affect that non-Christian boss? And if you are going to work tomorrow and by God's grace you work for a Christian brother or sister, praise the Lord. Give it your best effort. Show the world how brothers and sisters work together in harmony and love each other in ways that the world doesn't understand because you share a common salvation. That's what challenged you for tomorrow and the rest of your life, really. So why don't you uh, stand with me and we'll pray together. We'll ask God to help us do that.
God, these kinds of verses are so incredibly practical. Your word is really crammed full of relevance. We don't have slaves per se. We don't have masters per se. But we certainly share a commonality of what it means to indenture ourselves, to to serve other humans. And so I pray that you would help us to do this well. God, it would be really, really cool if a year from now, two years from now, five years from now, we had employers coming to this church who were once unbelievers and said, you know what, this Christian employee of mine so won me over with their honor and their behavior and their attitude toward me, I had to find out about this Christianity. And that we were able to see people come to know you in a saving way because of the way that we honor and work for non-believing bosses. And I also would be so excited to hear stories of how Christian employers looked at their Christian employees and said, they're the best ones I have. These are the ones that I want to hire over and over again because they're the ones that do such incredible work for me and they serve me with joy. And together we celebrate our common salvation in Jesus Christ. Father, those would be cool stories. Those are cool stories. Those happen. And so I pray that they would continue to happen. Help us to, by your grace, to put aside feelings of revenge or feelings of pride or uh, feelings uh, uh, somehow that we deserve something and help us to put on the mind of Christ which is reflected here Father we need your help because it's not easy it's not easy especially when we suffer under a boss that's not kind that, that can be cruel it's not easy to do these things but with your help we can so I pray you would bless our efforts changes from the inside out and we would see transformation social transformation happen because it started with us in jesus name i pray amen